welcome to the 16th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a new podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanent Day Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. Uh, What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, the past two weeks have been a continuation of the difficulties we discussed in our last show. Not only are the number of people with the disease in places like Florida, Texas, and California extremely high, but now we're seeing the inevitable consequences of the rising incidence of infections, and that's increasing hospitalizations. And soon we know there will be a spike in deaths that will follow. You know, the coronavirus is like a long rope. The torque generated is a multiple of the force applied. Remember, the exponential growth aspects of the coronavirus lead one infected person to give the disease to three, who then give it to nine and 27, 81, 243, and so on. By the time we notice what's happening, a worsening in the future is inevitable. It's too late to stop it. Of course, when it's one person giving it to three and then nine, the difference is only eight. We don't pay attention. When it's 1,000 giving it to 3,000 and 9,000, now the difference is 8,000 new cases. But from a biological and mathematical perspective, it's exactly the same. Emotionally, humans behave differently. We treat one like it's a wildfire and one like it's a warm fireplace. The virus moves forward with a predictability that we continue to ignore or understand. That leads to a second problem with exponential growth, and that is the inevitable mathematics that follow successful actions. Now, let's just say we did something in a geography to slow the growth by a third. That's a big change. Now, if there's 3,000 people infected, Rather than it becoming 9,000, it only goes to 6,000. And instead of becoming 18,000, it rises to 12,000. This intervention is a major success. 6,000 fewer cases. But it feels like abject failure. Since a week before, the number reported was 3,000 positive tests. And now there's four times that incidence. And of course, it doesn't end there. With the higher number of people infected, hospitals get overwhelmed. And a few weeks later, there's a spike in the number of deaths. When it comes to exponential growth, the human mind misses seeing the problem until it is late. And then it fails to see the success of our response and it induces panic. As such, we underreact at the start. 
and then overreact once things are headed in the right direction. The media exacerbates that response as both online and in-print articles report numbers in a linear, not exponential fashion. Calling 3,000 cases becoming 6,000 a success, that's impossible for reporters to comprehend, and the headlines chosen by editors proves ominous. When three becomes nine, the increase, only six. It seems not newsworthy. When 3,000 becomes 6,000, it's the focus of intense concern, and yet the former increase is far more dangerous long-term if it's not addressed and reversed. As you know, Robbie, I'm a big sports fan, and I know you were a guest on a major sports show about what is likely to happen this summer and fall. You were cautious at the time. What's new? Jeremy, as we discussed in our last show, despite the caution pro leagues are showing, the frequency of infection amongst professional athletes is very high. The incidence seems similar in most leagues, somewhere between 5% and 7%. Interestingly, the number of infected or the frequency with which professional athletes are being infected is not only far greater than the general population, it's even higher than the percentage of the trainers and other staff at the same site. So we can assume that the experience of the athletes themselves, the closeness they have in training and in games is accountable. As a result, we've seen facilities having to open and reclose and training curtailed. And recently, the Washington Nationals, Houston Astros, St. Louis Cardinals, and San Francisco Giants all canceled team workouts due to testing delays. We're starting to see colleges cutting back on athletics. The Ivy League has canceled football. Other leagues are only playing games in their conference. And Stanford eliminated 11 sports as a consequence of the decreased revenues they'll be receiving this year as a result of the coronavirus. It's hard to imagine, given the close contact of athletes in training and games, that we won't see this dangerous pattern of disease outbreaks happening again and again. You know, Jeremy, when it comes to who will win the soon-to-start NBA and NHL playoffs, or who will be victors in the upcoming shortened Major League Baseball season, the coronavirus may be as great a factor as team talent or coaching. There was a recent brouhaha between hundreds of physicians in the WHO, World Health Organization, about whether the coronavirus can be transmitted in small aerosolized particles. Uh, What was that all about? This whole issue was absurd. It's reminiscent of metaphors like Nero fiddling while Rome burned or rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Actually, it's a bit closer to the Jesuit debate over the number of angels who can dance on a pinhead. What the WHO puts into a white paper on the topic won't make any difference when it comes to transmission and deaths. We know with certainty this virus spreads person to person. The number one way is by propelling droplets of liquid 
when you sneeze or cough. But it's not just sneezing and coughing. Look closely at actors and singers, and you see a constant liquid spewing forth when they orate or create music. Breathing, sneezing, singing, and speaking all transfer virus from one person to another. Can the virus hang in the air after normal conversation? The answer is probably yes, but it's not the most common way it's transmitted. Does it survive for long periods in the air like measles? The answer is clearly no. In terms of what people need to do to limit transmission, the answer is the same regardless. The only exception are healthcare professionals and the types of masks they should wear in a hospital environment. The reality is the virus doesn't care what the WHO concludes. Close contact without masks spreads the coronavirus, whether it's through large droplets or smaller particles. But like a moth drawn to fire, we seem attracted to the debatable minutia of this disease, not the huge pieces that we know with confidence. We wonder, is the coronavirus spread by tigers? Or can it be transmitted by food wrappers? These are just insignificant compared to what we know about human-to-human spread as our faces come close together in bars or family gatherings. When people fail to wear masks, keep six feet apart, avoid crowded indoor spaces, wash their hands, get tested at the first sign of symptoms, and self-quarantine when the results are positive, the number of people infected will rise exponentially. That is the truth. And we continue to want to ignore it. This weekend, we posted our monthly Fixing Healthcare podcast, and it focused on the coronavirus. We explored the past, present, and future relative to the current pandemic. Uh, for listeners who have yet to hear that show, uh, what are we getting wrong today? Unfortunately, there is so much we are getting wrong. Let's start with the numbers on infections. By that I mean, we pretend that the number of positive tests per day has significance. Now don't get me wrong, most likely the number of cases is going up, but 60,000 per day isn't anywhere close to the actual number of infections. Assuming positive tests and new infections are the same, is fallacious. First, we know that something like 40 to 45% of cases are asymptomatic. So the number of new infections has to be at least double the positive tests since few asymptomatic people get tested. And we know many other people decide not to be tested even when they have symptoms. So the actual number of new cases is probably closer to 200,000 or even 300,000 which leads to the second issue. Listen to pundits, they talk about the need for testing and contact tracing. If the number of new cases is only 100,000 a day, and if, as we know, each person tends to have about 40 contacts over the previous 72 hours, we'd have to test 4 million people every day. And the experience so far is that two-thirds of people don't want to disclose their contacts Testing and contact tracing can slow the spread, but it can't come anywhere close to eradicating the virus in the United States, no matter how many people we hire to do 
the work. We do need to provide easy access to testing so people can figure out if they have the coronavirus and self-quarantine when the results are positive. But no matter how much we try to test and trace, until there is a vaccine for herd immunity, the coronavirus will haunt our nation. Having said that, easy access and assistance with contact tracing is vital to protect those most vulnerable from being exposed from those who are at low risk. And the most vulnerable members are often in our families. A third point is that we need to begin an honest conversation about the possibility that there won't be an effective medication to prevent the coronavirus or a vaccine to generate effective and safe immunity for far longer than anyone is saying today. That possibility will be the theme of an article I'll publish in Forbes tomorrow. Contrary to media headlines, the reality is there is no medication currently available that has been shown in a well-controlled, peer-reviewed article to save lives or prevent people from becoming infected. And although a vaccine is possible, the ones that are being developed are not the usual ones, like those against measles or polio. Most of the ones currently being developed are designed to generate antibodies to the genetic material found inside the virus. And despite two decades of trying, no vaccine of this RNA type has ever been shown to work. Now, I'm as hopeful as anyone that an effective and safe vaccine will be here soon. But I'm also realistic to know that it might not come for years. And if that's the case with this coronavirus, all of our efforts to reduce spread won't alter the total number of people who will ultimately become infected or the total number who will die. And that is a possibility that our nation has yet to adequately discuss. The virus has a hold on us that we can't dislodge. It finds pockets of vulnerability and it spreads exponentially, filling hospitals and leading to deaths amongst those who are most vulnerable. What are we getting wrong today? Almost everything. As a follow-up, in our Fixing Healthcare podcast, you said, if I had to pick a word for where we are today, it would be floundering. What did you mean by that? Jeremy, plain and simple, we do not have a strategy. As a nation, we don't like the options in front of us. And our response is to ignore reality rather than embrace one of the choices that exists. We just bounce around. Now, we could decide any of the following. First, we could say that we're confident we'll have a safe and effective vaccine by January 2021 based on independent, transparent review of all of the data that currently exists. Knowing we only have six months to wait, we could decide to reduce viral transmission maximally, despite the economic and mental health price we would have to pay in the interim. But before we pick that strategy, we better ask ourselves, why are we so sure the vaccine will be here? And answer the question, 
What are we going to do in January if we're wrong? Second, we might conclude that we're comfortable of a safe and effective vaccine, not in six months, but somewhere between 12 and 18 months. From this perspective, we might decide that the dangers outweigh the benefits of proceeding with as an intense a response as in the first strategy. We'd conclude a full year or a year and a half of keeping schools closed, adding more business failures, and worsening the mental health of people is just simply too great a price to pay. In that case, our strategy could be less draconian and follow the Pareto 80-20 principle. Specifically, we'd require in all 50 states masks and six-foot distancing. We'd make whatever investments are possible to provide free and rapid testing to anyone who wants it with the expectation they will self-quarantine and notify others if positive. What would be different from today is that rather than issuing guidelines, we'd impose major penalties against the people who violated the expectations if this is our strategy. Finally, we might conclude that despite the hype, a safe and effective vaccine won't be coming anytime in the next two years. Although we'd be distraught by the implications, we might conclude stopping the spread of this virus is a battle we won't win. From that perspective, no matter what we do, 200 million Americans will experience COVID-19 by the time the disease ends. And if that's our assumption, our strategy would now shift from maximally reducing transmission to doing everything possible to maximally protect those who are most vulnerable. We'd make major investments in safe housing, home-delivered food, and mandatory testing for anyone who will come in contact with this vulnerable segment of the population. We need a scientific understanding of when there will be a vaccine, and that will require elected officials to legislate requirements for drug companies to release all of the data rather than press releases. And using that information, elected officials could select and communicate a clear strategy with specific legally mandated expectations and penalties for violation. That approach could diminish the number of deaths, but nothing that I've just mentioned exists today. Everything's vague and unscientific. Everyone's hoping there'll be a vaccine soon and that not too many people will die in the interim. But as business students understand, hope is not a strategy. Every strategic choice comes with consequences. As a nation, we have to decide which ones we're willing to accept. One thing is for sure, dozens of different approaches on a state-by-state -state basis with people flaunting the recommendations and expecting the virus to disappear, it won't happen. It isn't the strategy. It's a recipe for disaster. Floundering is just a nicer way to say what is happening and to predict what will happen if we fail to embrace a well-thought-through 
scientific strategy to which our entire country will adhere. First, Trump touted hydroxychloroquine, and the media on the left hated it as they tend to do anything he touts. Um, The medical journals published studies saying it was dangerous, uh, which was then debunked and retracted, which we discussed in a previous episode. Now, a study came out saying it was reducing the number of deaths, and the media on the right is pushing us like it's, you know, 100% fact. You know, we, we like to say we're down the middle, we ignore all politics. And so, all politics aside, what do we actually know about hydroxychloroquine? Which brings me also to... Where are we with treatments and therapeutics? Are we any better at treating the disease than we were when it first came to the United States? Jeremy, you're correct that hydroxychloroquine has been treated as a media event and political issue. As a result, we can't be sure about the science of this drug or its risks to people's lives. What we do know is that this drug won't, to any major degree, change the number of people who become infected or die from it. People, politics, and the media, they keep looking for the Hail Mary that will save our country and put the coronavirus behind us. It doesn't exist today, and it's unlikely to happen in the near future. For all of the conversation about medications, the long-term total impact will be minimal based on the drugs that exist today. Until there's a vaccine, and that is most likely to be 12 to 18 months, if at all, we will be confronting this virus without very much success at treating the people who become critically ill and without the tools to prevent people from becoming infected in the first place. Miracles happen, but most often when you count on them, you're disappointed and you pay a huge price. So positive cases are skyrocketing across the country. Florida just set a new record. Um, Death rates, though, seem to be on the decline. Uh, We're seeing much less deaths than we were in April and early May. Does this mean that we're better at treating it or um, increased social distancing for the at-risk? Well, more people who are less at-risk are getting tested due to increased testing capability or what? what? What the heck's going on? I'll start by saying the mortality for people who become sick from this disease is not significantly lower than it was in the past. There are a few minor improvements, maybe a few new drugs and approaches that we have that we can use, but the experience is that the likelihood of surviving remains low for people who become critically ill and require ventilators. Now, it's not clear why the average number of deaths per day is lower than it was in the past. 
Although given the skyrocketing incidents that we're seeing in Florida and Texas and California, it's possible we're going to see as many or even more deaths in the future. Remember, it's a three-stage process. Transmission goes up. A few weeks later, hospitalizations rise. And then a few weeks later, we see the death toll soar. Remember that over 40% of deaths, however, came from residents of nursing homes. And we've become smarter about what we need to do to reduce that incidence. And of course, more young and healthy people are able to be tested now than in the past. And hopefully, some of them are staying away from the more vulnerable family members. As we said, maybe we're a little tiny bit closer to being able to save an occasional life from someone admitted to the hospital. But when we put all of the pieces together, things are more similar to what they were in March than they are today, with the one exception being the nursing home facilities. And even there, as we are progressively easing restrictions, that may change. We're now four months into this virus, and things are far more similar to what they were in March and April than different. And on the horizon, it looks like that pattern will continue. Thousands of small businesses have closed in my community, your community, across the country, and famous names too, uh, like Hertz, Latham Airlines, JCPenney, Neiman Marcus have all filed for bankruptcy, and yet the stock market seems to be soaring. What's going on? Jeremy, as you know, when it comes to the stock market, it's never possible to be sure what's happening. But two factors clearly are in play. The first is the salutary impact of the aggressive stance that the Federal Reserve is taking to provide almost unlimited life support to businesses and financial institutions. Unlike the recession of 2008, when the financial underpinnings of the nation were rotten, the current downturn is a result not of an economic or financial factor, but a biological one, the coronavirus. Phrased differently, if there were a 100% effective vaccine, the economic or the boom of the past would be continuing rather than the recession that we're seeing. And this is the fundamental assumption of the Fed. When a vaccine is here, we will go back to economic prosperity, and the job of the Fed is to build a bridge over the troubled waters until we get to the other side. In the class I teach on strategy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I make the point that often there's more than one best strategy. As such, the question shouldn't be whether the Fed is pursuing the right path or the one that I would recommend, 
but whether given all the facts, what they are doing is reasonable. And in this case, expecting a vaccine to be available and propping up businesses until it happens makes sense. Financial pundits talk about whether the recovery will be a V, a W, or something closer to a checkmark with a vertical downstroke and a flatter and longer second limb. What we know is that the V-shape will occur if a vaccine becomes broadly available early next year. And the check mark will happen if there's no vaccine, but our country continues to reopen despite the continuation of the disease. The W will occur if we open businesses and then close them each time the number of cases rise. But what we're seeing is that the market is behaving as though this is not the likely scenario. And the evidence is that even with the recent spike in disease, most elected officials or businesses are continuing to move forward with reopening, albeit at a slightly slower rate. The other interesting factor to me is how differently the NASDAQ is performing versus the Dow at S&P. The NASDAQ is at an all-time high, and my interpretation is that investors have concluded that the world coming out of COVID-19 will be dramatically different than the one going in, but not that it's going to be worse. Take business travel, a major source of revenue and profits for airlines, car companies, and hotels. Having replaced the overwhelming majority of business travel with teleconferencing, they're assuming we won't go back to the old normal, but there will be new winners coming out of it, companies that would not have been successful in the past. And they're putting their money on these entrepreneurial and new businesses in the future, not the ones from the past. Similarly, I believe that the shift we're seeing from retail stores to online shopping will accelerate, as well as technology replacing people. I think what we're seeing in the stock market is prescient for the future, a change in how we live lives, what the new normal will be. The markets are treating the current recession dramatically different than the one 12 years ago. Investors don't see what is happening as indicative of a long-term financial recession. They see it as a shift from the society of the past to the one of the future. And in that way, the coronavirus will impact every aspect of society, from real estate to entertainment to healthcare, the markets are predicting that a vaccine will stop the spread of the virus. But they're also predicting a vaccine won't slow down the societal transformation. Can you give a health example of the change you envision? Jeremy, a great example of this process is a friend of mine who recently developed a medical problem for which her doctor was struggling to make the diagnosis. She called to ask me whether I thought she should see another doctor in her community. I suggested she consult a doctor at an academic institution that I knew 
3,000 miles away, not in person, but through video. That would have been unimaginable and impossible six months ago. And now, it was straightforward. Teladoc, which trades in the New York Stock Exchange, has seen almost a doubling of value since this pandemic. Now, some of that enthusiasm could be short-term, and it may recede once people become comfortable going to doctor's offices again. But in the post-coronavirus era, ease of access and convenience will continue to be desired by patients. And care options, particularly ones facilitated through technology, that would not have been possible even six months ago, will, I believe, become standard. Jeremy, on our Fixing Healthcare podcast, you often provide the perspective of the patient. As we said earlier in the show, much of the strategic thinking about what we should do relative to schools, businesses, and social distancing needs to be dependent on when we believe a highly effective, safe vaccine will be broadly available. Given the unwillingness of drug companies to provide all the information that they have to other researchers for analysis, even doctors can't figure out what's real and what's pure hype. As such, there's no way most patients can hazard even a scientific guess. But let's say we could, with a high degree of certainty, know when the vaccine is coming. How would you alter your current day-to-day decisions in your life if you knew with a high probability, one, the vaccine would be available by the end of the year, or two, it would be available in the middle of next year, or three, not until the end of 2021, or four, at least two years away, and maybe never. Robbie, I think this is a difficult question to answer. I think if I knew a vaccine would not be available to the end of the next year, I think I'd want to return to 100% life as normal while, you know, separating myself from those in my, you know, family that at risk. You know, I probably wouldn't see my parents or, you know, any elderly people that I'm friends with or or that I know. Um, You know, I I think I would maintain social distancing within reason, Um, but I, I, I would probably want to work towards herd immunity in that situation. I mean, I just don't think that our economy can keep opening and closing and and prolonging the economic damage. I mean, I live in a college town. And like I, I said before, I mean, the downtown area, which is normally bustling with people and active is a ghost town. Many of the bars and restaurants and shop are closed, some temporary, some permanently, some that have been around for generations. And there are many rumors about others that are on the verge. I mean, if the college students don't return in the fall, the local economy will suffer. I mean, I mean, we talked about sports earlier. Um, not having college football in the fall would devastate the local economy, and not just in my town that I live in, but every college town and sports town across the country. Uh, more businesses will have to close. Their vendors will be affected. And then, I mean, that'll have to close, and, and the dominoes will continue to fall. And this will affect everyone's livelihood and mental health. And, and again, I hate to say it, but at some point, 
you know, we do need to think about, you know, what's the fastest and most effective way to get through this and how do we make it so that the cure is not worse than the disease? I think if an effective and proven to be safe vaccine is a long way off, I would want to move towards another plan of action than just waiting for a vaccine. Let me ask you a follow-up, Jeremy. How comfortable would you be taking your son to a football game or more significantly, an indoor basketball game at the local college? That's a tough one. I don't know how to answer that. Uh, I think, you know, seeing how safe it is for kids, I think as long as, you know, there were some sort of restrictions in place, you know, I'd, I'd be comfortable taking him to an outdoor football stadium, I think. Um, as long as it wasn't super packed, which, I mean, how do you get through those, you know, crowds of tailgating people, but an indoor basketball game, I'm just, I'm just not sure. I think it's important that our listeners think about these issues and try to figure out the decisions they would make. It's one thing to develop national policy. It's another thing to apply it to yourself and to those that you love most closely So let me follow that up with a third question. As a businessman, you talk with dozens of people every week about the coronavirus and its economic impact. If the development of a vaccine were marching forward, the way vaccine development occurs, and you had the option of getting vaccinated and having your son get vaccinated at any point along the way, Would you do it during the initial human trials? Would you refuse to do it then, but proceed once the FDA had approved it? Or would you wait a little later on to make sure it's really safe and effective and all the potential side effects are well known? Or would you decide you're not going to have it done, that you'd rather take your chances of having the disease and getting better than taking a vaccine that has only been recently introduced. Where would you get on the train? I think if I felt like it was rushed out and not tested for safety um, 100%, I would wait until I felt comfortable with its safety. Um, You know, my son and I are both at ages where we're not as at risk. Um, I... I think if it was, you know, taking the risk between getting a virus that we are very, very, very likely to not die from or have serious repercussions from versus, you know, something that's not proven to be safe, I would, I would rather roll my dice and get the, get the virus. And that being said, you know, more and more the healthy and young people that I talk to say the same thing. They're not going to take a vaccine uh, that was rushed out, even if it's forced on them. They want to wait till it's proven to be safe and effective. And and again, they would rather take their chances with the virus than a a new vaccine. And I have even heard some say they'll never, ever, ever take the vaccine. And I think a big part of that is, you know, due to all of the changing information that we're getting. uh, And, you know, to be honest, a lot of the distrust around a lot of the pharmaceutical companies anyway. um, I think, you know, they think if we can't trust the information we're getting now, how can we trust the vaccine that's rushed out? Um, I have a feeling, you know, the, the only ones that are probably going to jump at going on during human trials or once it's approved by the FDA are going to be the ones who are uh, most at risk. And I think 
you know, many, many young people and, and healthier people are just going to say, hey, I'm going to wait until I'm 100% sure it's safe. You focused on the coronavirus intently over the past two weeks, including not only this podcast, uh, Coronavirus the Truth and Fixing Healthcare, uh, that podcast, but also in your Forbes articles and as a guest on other people's podcast or and as a guest on other people's podcast programs, why? My efforts right now reflect my view that we are at a crucial moment in history, and I believe that all Americans need to understand the facts, the science, the biology, as much as we know it today. Our nation is what strategists call a strategic inflection point. It's a moment in time when not only has change happened, but the world never goes back to where it has been. The introduction of the computer is an example of one such moment. The smartphone is a second. It's clear that the coronavirus is more than a pandemic. It heralds a strategic inflection point for life as we have known it. And that time of transition is happening today. I've seen it in elected officials who, despite rising numbers of cases and hospitalizations, now conclude that the negative consequences for people of shuttering their communities and sheltering totally at home is far worse than advancing cautiously. I've seen in people who were totally afraid in March and April seem to become, let's say fair in May and June, suddenly they're taking a more realistic approach to the risks. They're concluding that this pandemic will be with us for a long time. But they're also deciding that they're not likely to die as a consequence. And that combination makes me hopeful that they will take the relatively easy steps of wearing masks, getting tested, avoiding densely packed indoor spaces as a means to diminish transmission until a vaccine is available. Finally, I've seen people reacting differently to new ways of getting services and products and realizing how much they were missing in their lives before. You know, when ATMs were first put in place by banks, people were afraid to put their money in it. And now they wouldn't use an institution without one. When Amazon started sending products to people's homes, most individuals remained loyal to traditional brick and mortar locations. Now ordering online for most people is the first and preferred option. Relative to the coronavirus, everyone wishes it had never come ashore. They wish that a bat had never transmitted it to an intermediate species and onto humans. But that's what's happened. And I think that people are now accepting, not liking, but accepting that this reality is here and in a few areas like healthcare, 
like entertainment. A growing percentage of people are saying, I never knew it could be this good. Jeremy, I'm a big believer that people make the best decisions when they confront issues consciously and they acknowledge the various risks that exist. They may still decide to make a foolish choice, but having done so consciously, they're less likely to feel like a victim and therefore they're willing to accept the consequences of the choices they make. Neither being immobilized by fear nor blatantly disregarding the dangers is the best approach for our country when it comes to the coronavirus. What our nation needs is the best scientific information that is possible. Transparency of all of the data and then a commitment to a well-defined path forward that we follow. It isn't a question of finding an approach without consequences. It's being ready to make a choice and accept the downsides that are inevitable based on that choice. And I think people in most parts of the country have finally reached that moment I'm optimistic that the facts we present will support them going forward. And I believe we can end our time of floundering, that we can embrace a strategy. And as a consequence of that, we won't be able to obviate all of the downsides, but we can maximize that which is best for our nation and its people. As a reminder to our listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the Contact Us page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.